poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson, and I am delighted to be back at it, bringing you interviews on a weekly basis. I know that I've took some time off. I've had my head down, training, coaching, living, breathing the CPG Wolves, and now after a few month hiatus of pumping out interviews, I am ready to get back to work and to the guests whose conversations have been recorded and sitting on the shelf for a few months. I do apologize for this delay in getting your episodes out. What can I say? I'm a pretty obsessive human being. Now, with that out of the way, today I am joined by dual guests, the exceptionally talented father-daughter duo who finished third in the tag team event at the 2021 Fall WSOP, Amanda and David Botfeld. Amanda's a multiple-time guest on CPG who has been published in the Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, and Los Angeles Times, and is the author of A Girl's Guide to Poker. David Botfeld has seemingly been successful at most things he's tried his hand at, including teaching his daughter how to play cards and grinding back in California in the legendary 60s and 70s. When Amanda first approached me about having her and her dad on the podcast, my first reaction was, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know me, always priming myself for the downside. But instead, the conversation that you're about to listen to was exceptionally valuable to myself. I even quoted this conversation multiple times with my wife. It's one of those that when I turned off the recording, I was pumped up, full of energy, and ready to take on the world. David is a very generous human being who is chalk full of wisdom that he's happy to share with you. His daughter is a chip off the old block, and it is very easy for me to understand why their family has had such outsized success in whatever venture they choose to undertake. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you the daddy-daughter tag team of Amanda and David Botfeld on Chasing Poker Greatness. David and Amanda Botfeld, the Botfelds, how how are we doing today? Welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness. I'm excited. We're doing great. The daddy-daughter team from the tag team tournament last year. (laughs) The podcast (laughs) podcast tag team. I mean, so since you brought it up, I guess let's segue um, to that. So last year, y'all were a team in the tag team event. You got third at the World Series of Poker. Um, and that will, uh, most likely tie in to a longer journey that y'all have shared in the world of poker together over time. It's kind of a culmination. Um, so let's start with the tag team tournament last year. You got third leading up to the event. How did you feel? Why did you register that one? Had it been on your radar? All those things. That was that was um, that was Amanda's idea. She had this was like her vision. She had been talking about this for a couple of months before the tag team tournament. 
I never really thought about it until you brought it up. And I thought, sure, you know, because I've played kind of cash games most of my career. And what I know about tournament poker, I, for the most part, or to a large degree, I've learned from Amanda. So if she wants to do a tournament together, let's go. Yeah. For a little background on getting my dad into tournaments. So my dad's played poker for obviously a lot longer than I have. And, but he always played cash games. And for context, my dad, his like growing up recreational Saturday night game at Hollywood Park Casino, he'd play 510. That's his normal stakes. And I start dragging him to tournaments and he realizes that he's missing something and it's not the same. And so what I do is I what set do you, him up. What do you mean by that, missing something? They're totally different. Whatever I knew about cash games didn't apply to as much to tournaments in, in the longer run. There's things that you would never do in a cash game that you would always do or should always do in a tournament. You know, there are times when you have to, when you just have to move, you have to shove, even with, with cards that look not ideal. And a cash game player would never do that. But there are, you know, obviously there are situations where you have to do that to survive in tournaments. But that's what, you know, Amanda would point out to me. You've got to shove that hand. You've got to well, shove what happened that. was I gave, I set up my dad on a website that had free rolls. They had like free rolls every hour. There were about 700 people. They take about seven hours. If you got 10th place, you got 25 cents. And if you got <laughs> first place, you got $2.25. And again, for context, my dad's normal game, 510. Okay. And so I set up my dad on this account. And all of a sudden, I start getting texts from my mom saying, What's your dad doing till three in the morning? Well, I want to get off the computer. And then I start getting texts from my dad saying, Hey, I'm in the top 20. Hey, I'm at the final table. And after three weeks, my dad had over $4 in that account. For three. <laughs> And, and that's just the kind of person that my dad is, you know, it's having that discipline. How many five, 10 players do you know that would spend seven hours playing a free role? Cause they just want to get acclimated to the game. And what, based on my conversations, with my dad, what I learned, what he learned, you know, he comes from a generation where ace queen is not a very good hand, but when you're in a free role, you know, ace queen pocket eights like that's the nuts like you are so far ahead when you're you know playing at the beginning um although he did say that when you've been playing a tournament for six hours <laughs> the investment there and the strategy and the seriousness is much more than any saturday night five times yeah i mean basically the all the glory all the riches are up top and that's typically when you're the most tired and when there's very few people mm -hmm. remaining. Um, so David, let's go back a little bit in the story now to you growing up, playing games. Uh, tell me about how you grew up and the role that games played in your life. Well, little, you know, a little family background. Um, my family was, well, they were card players, but they played all these odd games that I, I, I didn't recognize. And they, some were poker, some weren't poker. My grandmother, who 
migrated from the old country. Um, she she was an awesomely uh, brutal card player. She beat everybody. And her son, my father, was literally a rocket scientist, worked for Rocketdyne in the Valley, developed all the booster engines for the Apollo and the Gemini and the Mercury missions. He was a really brilliant guy. And as Amanda pointed out, he was the national bridge champion in the in the in the 60s. So that was his game. But poker wasn't that popular. It was a Saturday night get together. Um, clubs weren't popular. Tournaments weren't popular. It was just a, it, what you did to, to kind of get together. And I would play um, poker with my buddies in high school, Friday or Saturday nights, I would close the, you know, this, the grocery store I worked for at nine o'clock and they'd all come over to my house and we'd play till three in the morning and we loved it. And I learned a lot, but that, but my, the start of my real poker career actually came when, um, I got a fake ID from, uh, one of the major airlines because my, I, I got a security job there. And when they were taking my picture, they asked me what, when you were born. And I thought, this is going to be a very official ID, so I might as well use this to my advantage. And I told them a date that was three years before. And all of a sudden, I've got an FAA-approved um, ID, which I used. Uh, and I all of a sudden, I was going to the Horseshoe Club in Gardena a lot. And well, I was 17. And those people were bad they were all on social security and they didn't take any risks. And can we, I was, can, can we go back and go back a second here to growing up in that house with the, you know, national bridge champion and grandmother who excelled playing cards. Tell me about playing games and the competitive nature, thinking about strategy. Uh, could you uh, talk a little bit more about that in your childhood? Well, we played games all the time and we were really competitive. Um, we were, I mean, we would play every board game possible all the time. We played Monopoly, we played Risk, um, we played Stratego. The, we just played all of them. And I was um, in uh, competitive athletics. I was, um, I, I went, uh, I was a national hand, I went to the national handball championship tournaments. Um, I was the top player on my high school tennis team. You were uh, undefeated, right? I was undefeated. I went to the, the state championships. I was always competitive. Um, it was just kind of how we grew up. And my father was always a strategic thinker. He, oh gosh, I mean, he left the kind of the space industry kind of when, when we got to the moon and he played professional bridge uh, for several years after that, when there was barely anything called professional bridge. Um, but we were always surrounded by, I want to call it game theory, because everything was a game. Everything we looked at that way. Where were you going to go to school? What were you going to do? And then he unfortunately passed away when I was 18 and my mother had passed away when I was 12. So um, I was 
really on my own, not in a figurative sense by the time I was 18. And I really didn't have anything to start. So I'm in an entirely different frame of mind, um, a, a reference point when I'm 18. And then what do you do? And that was kind of frightening and scary. But, you know, we had talked a little while ago about, you know, when somebody's really committed, they they change how they think. And I didn't have anywhere to fall back on at that point in time. I it likened it to kind of being in an airplane at 30,000 feet and they open the bomb bay doors. So all, it feels like you're safe, but you could fall out of that airplane at any minute and you're on your own. So I think that was really a turning point. And it had me think very differently. And it had me relate to what I was doing very differently. And frankly, I didn't have any money. And I needed to come up with ways in which to support myself. Um, and I got really skilled at playing poker. But mind you, these were the days when we, when you went, we went to Gardena, you played five card draw. They didn't have a stud game. There was no Texas Hold'em at the time. These were like the prehistoric Jurassic days. But if you had any skill at all, you could do really well. And I remember I was making, you know, a couple thousand a week at a time when my rent was 175 bucks a month. So it was actually real money um, at that time. Um, Tell me. Uh just real quick about strategy and thinking in terms of strategy, right? Because in order to, you know, show up in Gardena and recognize that the players don't know what they're going, it means that you need a foundation in which to judge or measure how they're playing compared to how you think they're supposed to pl be play uh, theoretically. So how did you, um, like, how did you approach strategy in those days? And, uh, well, proving it poker. In truth, I mean, I'm in here. I'm in here in a, in a situation that I'm not supposed to be in. I could get kicked out at any moment, and so that puts you on edge. I was honed in to everything that everybody was doing at that table, and most of these people were there to entertain themselves. They were not at all aware of their, their table presence. They weren't at all aware that they were one big walking tell. And I was keenly aware of their body postures, of their um, tells, of their, um, their ways of playing, which were very patterned. And after a certain period of time, very predictable. The problem with five card draw is there's not a lot of strategy to it. It's not as though you're gonna draw two cards when you need to draw three. You're gonna draw what you need to draw. So five card draw is a game of tells. It's a, it's a reading game. What does that other person have? And if you were on edge enough, you could pick those up very easily. And remember, this is a time when nobody, there weren't any young hustler types out there, no, no kids in hoodies. These were all old Jewish, old Texans um, that, that were playing poker 
as recreation, as entertainment. And so they were easy to pick off. Yeah. And it's necessary, right? Because you're in a situation with no net underneath you. And so you're underage and you need to make money, right? So basically you have all of that going both against you, but on the same token for you in that you're playing with a lot of intensity and most likely more intensity than any of the other players that you're playing against. They had, they, they would constantly ask, look at me after they got beat and they would say, you know, are you really 21? And I would say, of course I am. How did I get in here? They just, you know, but they, they got, they, they got beat bad. Um, but this was back in a day when they're, they didn't know about strategies. They just played by feel. They didn't know about reading or tells. They just played their cards. And that is not how you play poker. That Or any that, game, really. <laughs> not any game. That is just, that's where you start. So they were, they were uh, prehistoric and they were easy to pick off. And, and I did. And I did it, you know, and look, and I was like, um, like I said, I didn't have any, any backstops. So I didn't have any, there was no um, apologies on my part for that either. This is, you know, you're, you're putting yourself in a warfare situation. Yeah. How did it feel to be coming out on top in that situation? Oh, best thing I'd ever felt. I could do this and I could think this and I could get ahead of this. I could outthink all of these people. Um, and they, they knew it <laughs> and they, you know, I was, you know, I was the kid at the time and I was somebody to be, you know, kind of reckoned with, but, you know, not somebody, you know, there's, they're, again, they're still playing their cards. They're not playing the person. So I got away with a lot and, um, and I'm, I did, I made a lot of money doing that at the time. I know it doesn't sound like much. A thousand, two thousand a week doesn't sound like I'm on a lot of money. But back in the in the 70s, it was actually a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, a hundred K a year is a hundred K a year, like in, in the sixties, seventies, like it was it was more. You know, I remember we bought our house in the valley for thirty two thousand bucks. Yeah. And so, you know, thousand, two thousand a week is I mean, I was on top of the world and and I loved every minute of it. But, you know, then I went to, to college and, you know, I went, I went to school in Santa Barbara. I did that for four years. And then I was like, I was really at a crossroads at when I graduated from college because that's probably one of the most difficult times in my life because I really didn't know what to do. And the best job it seemed like I had in front of me was, um, I mean, literally selling typewriters for IBM, which I just was not going to do. And, and I was fortunate enough to get into the MBA program at USC. And why did poker fall off your radar and <sighs> selling typewriters at IBM seemed like a better choice than doing quite well playing cards? You know, card, the poker was slipping even at that time. People just weren't that interested in playing five card stud. Um, so there wasn't as much money going around there um, at the time. It was really falling out of favor. Again, 
the advent of tournament poker and no limit hold'em really didn't start in earnest until the 80s and then going into the 90s the 70s were a really dry period for all of this and you know maybe there were the i don't know stew youngers and doyles and all that playing poker in vegas but i i couldn't to be honest and this is kind of a bit of the segue that amanda was referring to earlier there were much bigger game for me to go after in the business world i could make a lot more money in the business world utilizing the skills that i had honed at the poker table then there was trying to play tournament poker or to scratch out a living playing cash when the poker economy, if you will, had died. The, the, those poker clubs, there were three poker clubs when I started, and I think they were down to one um, in the 70s. So you had to go to Vegas, move there, and scratch out a living doing that. And I had just not become acquainted with, with um, tournament poker at all. I'd never played a tournament at all. So I had no idea about what you could or couldn't do at the time. But then again, you know, I, I got a, at the time, a very valuable graduate degree that I'm working towards. And when I graduated from college, I had a lot of job offers. And I mean, frankly, they didn't pay me as much as I could have made in my heyday playing poker, but I knew I could go somewhere with them. I know my dad will be modest for reference. So he went to graduate school at USC business school. And he said that he went to turn in his tuition check his first semester at the office. And they said he was their number one student and didn't have to pay. That was, they said, it's not necessary. We've, we've given you a fellowship and I didn't even know what fellowship was, but Yes, I did. I did well. And I, I really loved it. And I was very much, um, you know, I loved, uh, I, I bought my first little um, kind of uh, apartment complex when I was in grad school. And I started playing stock market a bit when I was in grad school. And one of the jobs I was offered out of grad school was to be um, a stock trader at one of the major insurance companies. Um, but the guys who traded stocks did not look healthy and happy. These guys looked like they'd been smoking way too many cigarettes and their eyes were popping out of their head. It was not a happy place. And so I went to work for one of the big accounting firms um, and I passed the CPA exam and all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm a professional now, but I didn't like that either. And I left. Why didn't uh, you like being a professional? Not all it's cracked up to be, particularly for somebody like me, who's had the experience of being a successful entrepreneur in a relative sense. Um, my days at that firm were getting there at eight in the morning and leaving at 10 at night and doing really mundane, stupid tasks. You know, as we would say back in that day, toting and footing. I had my hands on the calculator all the time. I did really, I paid bills. I worked in 
as a trustee and you know in bankruptcies it was not fun and i said to myself this is what i've i've invested all of my time and money into um for what uh it wasn't fun and i didn't like it and and it was obvious and you know i had put i put in for a two week vacation to go find another job and the partner pulled me into the office that day and we talked and you know it was clear to both of us as it wasn't working and i was looking for something else and he fired me on the spot and that was rude i you know when you when you have a relationship you want to be the one that leaves the relationship you don't want to get left yeah so I wanted, I was in the process of leaving and he, and they left me. So can't, that you can't fire me. I quit type situation. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I could, I didn't, he didn't give me a chance to quit. <laughs> <laughs> fired me first. So, but you know, and then I said to myself, I never want to be in this position again. I never want to be in the position of having where somebody can fire me, where I don't have a say in my own future. Where I'm not the, uh, the 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 captain, I'm not the arbiter. I never want to put myself in that position, and I have never been in. And that was I was 23, and I have never been in that position since. But what'd you, you what'd you do next after that well, job? Um, here's what I did. Um, I went to a lot of the people I had met um, while I was um, doing tax work. And I knew all their, I knew their finances intimately. And I knew a lot of them had tax problems. And, and though at that time, you could buy apartment buildings and generate large write-offs with them that would shelter the taxes of the, of the people who, if they were willing to invest with you, um, you, you could, you could, you know, these were the days of what, what are called um, non-passive losses that you, you you could write them off these days you can't do that today but i enough of them um i said i'm now doing i'm now in the business of pooling money syndicating money buying apartment buildings fixing them up generating a large write-off that even if the project itself isn't successful and they all were you'll make money and i had enough people uh, say yes if you find the right project i'll invest in that project that it got me going and all of a sudden i am i'm i'm on my own i'm cruising i have people backing me i am buying apartment books i am i'm in charge how did it feel uh reaching out to these people and asking them to invest you know with someone that didn't previously have experience being out on their own like could you talk about the sales process how that felt and then you know how it felt to start closing the deals well i had i had i really did have this big advantage in that i was their tax guy i i knew their finances i had a i've passed the cpa exam i have an mba i have an enormous amount of credibility to leverage with those people so even if i didn't have any experience i had some experience I could explain the process. I could explain why we could buy this building, invest X amount of dollars into it, and the rents would go up 30%, and the value of the building would go up exponentially. And that's exactly how it worked out. And I could, in other words, I could explain the math. And I did. 
and I had a stump speech and I went around and and one of the things that I found in raising money was that talking to somebody directly was always hard. That that was difficult. But if I could have somebody be successful in working with me, they would scream to their friends, you should you should meet this guy. And all yeah. of a sudden I'm 70% there. So my strategy of raising money was um, raise it through the people that I that I've worked with, and that strategy was enormously successful. Yeah, and it's just uh, word of mouth advertising things kind of. Oh yeah. yeah, look, if somebody comes to you and says, "I made fifty percent on my money through this guy, and he really knows what he's doing, and you should do it too," you will. You'll think, or at least you'll think about it. And so I had a network of of investors. Um, and this was more fun than life itself. I mean, this was like, all of a sudden I'm a kid, I'm on my own. And then I got my broker's license because I could, you know, take three to 6% commissions then on every one of the deals that I did. And this was starting to be significant money. Um, you know, you said, you know, several million dollars worth of acquisitions and I'm making, you know, hundred to 200,000 a year just in commissions, forget about the upsides. Tell me, did you have any mentors during this time having, you know, lost both of your parents and being out in the world kind of by yourself? Um, in the business community, fewer than I, than I'd hoped for. Although, although I'll say this, um, I did go back and do, and do continue to do some tax work. And I, did some tax stuff with a shopping center developer um, who was a crazy lunatic, but a lot of fun. And it I can be. <laughs> yeah, this guy was insane. But being in that office was like, you know, it kind of reminds me of like, I don't know, a little bit like the Johnny Depp trial, but it was it was a hell of a lot of fun. And he was really sharp. And I, he would pull me into his meetings as his accountant in order to intimidate whoever it was that he was trying to negotiate a deal with. Um, and I wouldn't say a word. I would just watch him, watch him do his shtick. But I really learned a lot of the art of, I want to say, negotiation by manipulation, negotiation by intimidation. Um, a lot of those things. And then his top guy came to me um, at one point and he told me that um, his, his boss, that, that his mentor, was retiring and moving to Vegas. But he had this shopping center development deal that he had put together. And he wanted me to go in with him on it and finance it. I knew nothing about shopping centers or development or any of that stuff. Um, and he had this site in South Central LA, which you just wouldn't go to on a bet. And he was like this Mormon kid, but he had all of the gangs and the hoodies down there under his thumb and the guy how did he have him under his thumb? He's a sweet talker, I, I, I do have to say. And, and 
So now you're you're getting under his thumb as well. <laughs> oh no, Bob's very good. Look, I mean, look, <laughs> paint this picture. The reason why he got the deal was that the guy who had it before him got shot at this property, like for real. And so all of a sudden the owner is scared to death and he's willing to do anything. And it was one of these deals in a bar where you did it on a napkin. And he and Bob came to me and said, look, I've got tenants for this entire center. We He had the whole center pre-leased. This were like Winchell's Donuts, Launderland, um, the Nail Place, all these kinds of like, you know, 80s era tenants. And he came to me and said, I can't finance this, but I do have the deal all put together. Then I had a lot of experience with banks and financing. And I was able to borrow almost 100% of that of the money. And we built that center and we each made a million bucks. And it was shocking that you could do this, um, that it was possible. But, you know, this starts to kind of get into the life is a poker game kind of um, philosophy uh, of thinking, you know, how do you leverage what you know and what you don't know? And I, I think I was 26, something like that, 25, 26, 27. So you ask, you know, why, why didn't I go back into poker? Well, I would have. <laughs> if, if there was that, if, I could, if there was the availability of poker as something to leverage at the time, I absolutely would have done it. I just didn't have it. Yeah. Good thing you I didn't. If I could just add, um, you know, I teach classes for this organization, Poker Power, and their whole idea is the connection between poker and business and particularly getting women into both, you know, tables, so to speak. And when you listen to my father speak, you hear financial advice that's so different than what we're taught because pretty much all of America's taught the same thing when you ask for financial advice and it's spend less, save more, right? That is it. And what you get as a result is women hold 71% of their assets, assets in cash. Yeah. They're not thinking about how do you leverage your money? They're not thinking of, you know, if I bet now when I don't have enough down, I'm not going to compound my profit enough. Yeah. They're not thinking in terms of how do you grow your net worth in the same way. And when you talk about it from this way, you absolutely see the connection and the correlation between poker and business and where you're thinking from when you're thinking of money. Yeah. I mean, due to inflation, you know, cash is just loses power every single year. Yes. And poker is poker is an aggregation of a bunch of micro bets in situations that we deem to be plus EV. And in the business sense, you're also trying to make positive bets um, where you can find them to generate ROI, right? Um, cool. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just to add to that, I think part of what Poker Power is about, I, I like the context of it, is there's, it's an entirely, what you're talking about here is a different paradigm of thinking. And what I mean by that is, you know, you asked me, why didn't I like the professional life? Well, I, I didn't like 
the grind, uh, that grind. It wasn't fun, but the but the difference is that, and I this I've said to Amanda and you know many times is that in one paradigm, and this is the paradigm that most people live in. It's completely composed of how many dollars per hour can I make, and how many hours can I work. And most people's lives have something to do with um, longevity. How long can I do that? Um, how many hours, how many dollars per hour can I make? Well, look, if you can make $200 per hour, there's 2,000 hours in a year. That's $400,000. But that's working your brains out. And you're limited. And your thinking process only is revolves around longevity. How long can I do this? When I got fired, when I left accounting, I chose to go into an entirely different modality of thinking. It was what I call a deal-oriented methodology of thinking, where you didn't make dollars per hour, you made dollars per transaction. And the wealthiest people in the world make dollars per transaction not dollars per hour. Dollars per hour is a very, very limiting paradigm. It, you, you are by definition limited to the number of hours that are available in your workday. And that's always gonna be limited. And you know, if you're a lawyer, they talk about billable hours, but, but they complain about billable hours because there's only so much, they have to work 10 or 12 hours a day and it's suffocating. So, the and this is where poker has much to do with this because you know i know people talk about making dollars per hour as a poker player but they don't think that i'm not sitting at a poker table thinking how can i make 175 dollars an hour i'm thinking how much am i up or how much am i down at the session but when you're at a poker table and this is the real point you're in a in an entirely different state of mind you're in a different paradigm. You are playing by transaction. You're not playing by hour. You're playing hand by hand. And when you are, and more pointedly, you're at risk. So one of the things I learned from poker was when you put yourself intelligently in a place of risk where you know what you're doing or you can learn about what you're doing, you can be extraordinarily successful in those modalities, as opposed to the dollars per hour model of thinking, which 90% of the world exists within and are limited by. So the real fun, the real money comes from putting yourself in a dollars per transaction kind of paradigm and a modality of risk. And the thing I think Amanda talks about with poker power is that women have a, a have an aversion. This is what she said. This is not me talking. She says women seem to have an aversion to risk, which is where she talks about putting all their money in cash. And the whole the whole thinking process behind poker power is to get women into finance where they're comfortable taking risk. You know, nobody's comfortable taking risk. You tell somebody you're going to be put at risk, it, 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 you know, it's considered a negative. But one of the things I learned from playing poker was it's not a negative. And if you're willing to put yourself 
in that realm of taking risks intelligently, you can be extraordinarily successful. And it's so much fun. Oh my goodness, is it fun? And if you, you know, expand your worldview, everything is a risk as it relates to opportunity cost, uh, going outside, driving to Starbucks or taking a walk or like there's risk inherently in pretty much everything that we do. And so a lot of it is um, trying to sniff out and take intelligent risks um, where you have a lot of knowledge or understanding of what's going on. And yeah, you know, the math checks out, right? Um, what else, David, would you say you learned from those years of poker that maybe business school, uh, didn't exactly teach you that you did apply to business? Well, you know, I think they really started to play out in my business, in, in, in the, in my business career, because, you know, I think the thing that you learn as a poker player is you start to think from you know, if I call or raise, what effect is that going to have on my opponent? And what you're really trying to do is you're trying to induce them to do something. You're trying to think out in advance um, what you want your opponent to do and what action, in given the number of actions you have available to you, will will set them up to do what you want them to do. Poker is really about taking actions that induce others to do what you want them to do. You can't guarantee it, but you can certainly set them up for it. And so a lot of my business career has always been characterized as what if I want them to do X, how do I get them there? What actions do I take? And sometimes I've got to think out of the box um, in order to do that. But I think the basic precept of, of a poker player is revolves around what actions can I take in order to do what they do? And everything is, as you know, um, looked at at a poker table. You know, you're always on. You are always on screen. You're never... Um, you know, people are watching you all the time. So you're never off camera, so to speak, at a poker table. And you're never really off camera in life either. Um, you know, and I have, I don't know, I mean, I, like, I have like a couple of, I have several war stories in business about that, that kind of um, make that point. But the other thing I, you know, I learned is that um, you can be, is what I call the David and Goliath thing. You know, in the business world and on a poker table, it really is true that any schmo can come onto the poker table and, you know, beat the WSOP champ in any given hand. Um, and how do you do that? Well, there's lots of, there, there are lots of ways to do it. I'll, I'll give you one, one story in my business career that speaks to what I'm talking about here. What actions can I take to induce an action out of somebody else that I want them to do? So um, a few years down the road, um, I found this little shopping center with um, 
a blockbuster video in it. And, you know, for, you know, blockbuster video was the largest video store chain, you know, in the world. It was the Goliath of video store chains. And um, they had a, a store location in there. And it was really well-priced, but one of the reasons why it was well-priced is because the lease was up in like a year or two. And in commercial real estate, you don't want that. You want a long-term lease to provide stability. So, you know, okay, I need more information here in order to see if this is, if this is gonna work. And it just so turned out that one of my wife's sorority sisters was married to the guy who was in charge of leasing for Blockbuster's main competitor, which was called Hollywood Video at the time. So I called this guy up and I said, what do you know about this particular store? He went on a rant about this store. He said, that's not just a store, that's the top store in the Western region for Blockbuster Video. And I said, really, They're, you know, the lease is up in a couple of years. He said, they are going to renew that lease for sure. We have been trying to get into that area for years. We can't find a location. You should take that. You should you should buy that center. So I thought, well, there's some there's some, you know, there's showing me a queen, yeah. so to speak. Um, and I put a group together and we bought the center. And then I went to Blockbuster and I said, you know, you have an option to renew, which they did. You want to you want to, you know, pick up the option. And I couldn't get a call back from them. So I'm thinking this is bad. I'm about to be um, trapped. You know, they're going to come to me and make me a, a lowball offer. And so I went back to the guy at Hollywood Video and I said, look, I'm not getting any response from these guys. I'm afraid of what's about to happen. What would you be willing to take over the store and pay the option price that Blockbuster has built into their lease? And he, he looked at me and he said, I'll do it on one condition. What's that? That if I put a lease together with you, you can't go to Blockbuster Video and say, I have a lease from your major competitor. You know, you have to give me the right to just take over. And I thought, well, okay, I don't really want to do that, but it certainly puts me in an incredibly powerful, advantageous position. And this is thinking like a poker player right now. I'm thinking ahead. What's what's my competitor, Blockbuster Video, going to do? And that's exactly what they did do. They came to me. The option was at three fifty a foot. They came to me at a dollar seventy five a foot, which would have been catastrophic for the the math of that deal. And I said, Why are you coming to me this low? You have an option for three fifty. He said, because the 7-Eleven across the street just renewed their lease at $1.75. And I said, okay, I'll take the deal to my, my partners. And I never called him back. And that, you know, and my partners told me, one of them was a lawyer, don't even counteroffer. Because if you counteroffer, they can construe that as something that they could say yes to. So you have no choice now. You have to sign the lease with Hollywood Video and boot out Blockbuster. You have no choice. Yeah. So I did. And then the guy from Hollywood Video comes to me and says, well, what happened with your partners? And I said, I, I, unfortunately, we've gone in another direction. And he said, what does that mean? And I said, you know, I signed the lease with Hollywood Video, at which point he flipped out. 
And because he had just out negotiated himself uh, out of the best location in the chain. And they started coming to my office with <laughs> checks, um, you know, 50,000, 100,000. How much do you want? I said, nothing. I said, I've signed this deal. You guys out negotiated yourself. I'm sorry, but you know, you, you brought this on yourself. And um, he was fired and he came to me looking for a job, which I didn't provide him with. But. <laughs> yeah, probably not the, uh, <laughs> the, the right person to be asking for a job in this situation. But that, that's playing poker in the business world. That's, that's looking for information uh, outside of the box. Yeah. That's an acting upon it and taking advantage of information that you couldn't get otherwise. And, you know, when somebody has, um, you know, I knew they were trying to trap me. I knew he was going to come at me with a bogus offer. Um, and I didn't want to have to go back and forth and duke it out with him about that. I wanted to just go in and execute him, um, you know, and that's exactly what happened. And conversely, it shows how bad of a poker player the blockbuster representative was and how tone deaf he was that after all this happens, that then he comes and asks my dad for a job. And it shows how not in tune he was with what was going on. Are you a lone wolf searching for the ultimate pack? The CPG Wolf Program is a close-knit brotherhood hell-bent on one thing only, chasing poker greatness. Powered by bleeding-edge wolf strats and led by Coach Brad and his lieutenants, CPG Wolves are systematically prepared for almost any spot they'll encounter on the green felt. If you want to plug into an elite team and have a step-by-step -step game plan to realize your full poker potential, you can apply at cpgwolves.com. Space is limited, and the pack is only as strong as its weakest member. So only the hungriest, grittiest, and most driven will be accepted into the program. Applications are open at cpgwolves.com. Yeah, it seems like the you know, their value was basically trying to get one over on the owner um, of the complex and not about what's fair and also not about like protecting this prime spot that they have that's their best selling store um, in the region, right? Just like risked losing the best store in the region to save money on the lease when it was just totally unnecessary. He when I told him I, I wasn't going to give him a counteroffer, he he said, you have to give me a counteroffer. You owe me a counteroffer. I don't really owe you a counteroffer. As a matter of fact, the reason I didn't give you a counteroffer was it could have, it, I mean, I could have gotten into real trouble yeah. by giving you any, any counteroffer. And, and that's, it's, yeah, it's something that I, I read maybe a few years back on negotiations that when you lowball somebody like that, oftentimes it ends the negotiation because you recognize real quick that you're not in the same league and the, everything just falls apart. So careful lowballing people to the CPG listener out there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, very much so. But, you know, it's an, it's an example where you think 
sometimes because you're the big player that you can take advantage of people and you get out negotiated. And that's sure. exactly what happened there. He, yeah. he got outplayed. This was a this was a poker hand from start to finish. And he thought because he was the big gorilla in there that he was going to outplay me. And he um, tried to tried to exploit you, right? He completely tried to exploit me. And then he's coming to ask me for a job two months later. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, buddy. Um, moving, moving along to, you know, you are married at this point. At some point, you know, y'all have Amanda and raising her um, in a house with poker. Tell me about mm -hmm. games, her childhood, and all of that stuff. Well, I think it's almost like a man manager to probably chime in a little bit of what her experience was. And I know she has stories that she likes to tell about it. But to be really honest, I never tried to groom Amanda for poker. Um, uh, we played and we played competitively, but it was fun. We had fun playing competitively. You know, uh, Amanda's brother, Michael, kind of he played. He kind of prided himself on playing poker when he was, you know, 12, 13, 14, and then he kind of switched over into chess. And so he's, and he still plays chess and he's, you know, he's a very good chess player, but there was always this competitive, but fun um, modality of card playing around the house. And, you know, but Amanda's competitive too. You know, she was, uh, she ran cross country, um, it, Santa Monica High, and she was like their top runner. She's competitive about it. She all she Amanda, Amanda to this day, she wants to be great. Amanda wants to be a great player. Amanda wants to make an impact. Amanda wants to be be known for something. She wants to be a player. And um, but again, and she should probably speak a little a little more. I I remember she talks about and and you can pick this up. I gave her a little video poker machine. Yes. Just as a toy, but it wasn't a toy to her. It was, it was a, a, a gateway to something. And she, I, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. When I was seven years old, my dad gave, we have a drugstore near us called Rite Aid. Um, he gave me this battery operated little video poker machine. And it's, you know, it's just like hand rankings, right? And I brought it to school and I played it until the batteries died every day. And for me, there was like this mystique and I didn't have any of the bad connotations about poker. Like I remember growing up, um, my father has an exercise machine, the stair climber machine. And he'd always growing up, he would use his, and he still does, <laughs> he would, Use the stair climber machine and he'd watch poker. And I That's thought this was do. the most boring thing ever. <laughs> like, first of all, I thought poker on TV, you know, I was a kid, I didn't have patience for this. I thought it was boring. Um, and then second of all, while you're working out, what could be more slow? You know, what could be worse for your adrenaline than watching poker? But that's what he did. And my dad. He had poker books when a lot of people didn't have poker books. I mean, I remember he had like Negrano's book. And when I was a kid, 
there was the only thing I do remember. So we had Phil Helmy's book when they had different players as animals. So I was probably like 10 years old. And obviously I got the elephant because the elephant never wants to fold. And what 10 year old kid wants to fold. Right. And, you know, what human wants to fold on what what human wants to fold. Right. You know, most people don't go to the poker table thinking they're going to go and fold, uh, hurry up and fold. But anyways, there was a main event episode where one of the players was like, we all just pay $10,000 to sit here and fold. But anyway, so I remember that. I remember like taking the animal quiz when I was a kid. And I remember not a lot, but, you know, on a weekend, sometimes my dad would go and play poker. And that was just kind of the world that I grew up in. But as many people can understand, there's a huge difference between playing with your dad and your grandpa and my brother, which was what it was on like New Year's and playing in a casino. And I thought, because my dad knows how to play poker, I know how to play poker, which I think is very, very common for people. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I had the, the super question, which was, uh, is my dad really that good? <laughs> and when I was in the real world, and I was fortunate that, you know, I think you can all tell where my dad thinks from. But for me, it was like poker had a lot of, uh, to be honest, prestige around it. And, you know, my father is one of, you know, the most upstanding people I know. He's not like that whole persona of the villain and the card shark. Uh, that wasn't there for me. And it was actually like I remember. So I started playing poker when I was 23, like in the real world. And I remember some people were talking about something called sports betting. And I asked what that was. Like I, like I was, I did like, for me, I was, it sounds silly, but poker was really wholesome the way it was done in my house. And it really was about the strategy and it really was about the skill. My dad, and I'll bounce it back to him. Cause my, my brother just graduated from law school and he was saying, my dad was saying as a father, he was wondering when playing chess and playing cards and playing these games, should I let my kids win? And had this, right, this whole um, internal debate about it. And obviously, my dad did not let us win. <laughs> and he always beat us in Monopoly. <laughs> I know, I, I, and I, I, I struggled with that. I, I was like, I don't want them to get so beat up that they never want to play again. But I didn't, nobody did me any, nobody gave it to me. I mean, I did not, I did not live the, you know, silver spoon life or, you know, I didn't grow up that way at all. And it, and it, and it taught me something and it, it, it taught me to have to figure things out and scratch and um, uh, determine for myself how, how things worked. But, but the flip side of that is, you know, I like, I taught my son how to play chess. He liked to play chess. And we would play and, you know, and I would always beat him for several years. And then he got good. He figured it out. He read chess books. And then he, the first time he beat me, I knew I was in real trouble. <laughs> he was yeah. never going to let me win again. Yeah. He's going upward trajectory. <laughs> you're plateauing and it's all downhill from here for you. And I you just, had your fun. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know how much longer after that, but I just stopped playing chess with Michael. <laughs> just, <laughs> It is not going well. 
it's not going to go well. So that, you know, there's the flip side to that, but I don't mind that. I don't mind that Michael is like, you know, a really good chess player and, and he has a real killer instinct about it. And I, and I know that's one of the ways to um, induce that is to, you know, not let them off the hook and have to have them figure things out. And, you know, Amanda, she went off to DC and got a kind of a fairly, you know, prestigious professional job kind of analyzing Middle East, um, uh, things in the Middle East and writing about it. And, you know, I th and she loved it, but she got bored. And they just, they opened up a casino uh, outside of DC. And all of a sudden she's playing at this casino. And it's a great experience for her. It's really nice, it's really new, but she's getting beat up. And we, we, we talked about it and she, um, she was playing all by feel and she knew nothing of the math. She did not know what her odds were of pulling a flush after you've, you know, you flop a four card flush or, or how, you know, how often you do you really get pocket aces and none of those, and, but you, you know, you have to know those numbers in order to know whether to call or fold. Somehow she knew she was an elephant from Phil Hellmuth's book, but not the odds <laughs> of a flush draw. So I don't know what that what that means exactly. <laughs> now, and to her credit, she's now to her credit, and I love her dearly. She's still not real great at numbers, but she, um, to her credit, she put together I don't know how many flashcards. One hundred and eighty, and she memorized. She can tell you the odds. And she would, some of these ones, what she'd tell me, she, you know, she can tell you what the odds are of um, uh, turning or, you know, uh, rivering a full house when you flopped a set. And I didn't know those odds, but she, she, she put on those flashcards, the odds of every situation that you'd come up against. And she still can't figure the odds out, but she knows them from having memorized and that was part of her commitment to getting great at, at playing cards. So she had to develop herself. She had to develop herself at the math, but she did. She just didn't develop it by doing math. She developed it as a writer. What would a writer do? She, would, she, she brute forced it, right? She brute forced it. She would memorize the, memorize the odds in any given situation and then determine where to go from from there to her credit, and, um, and that's what it took. But then she became um, much more effective. And I think it was also the beginning of her stint as more of a tournament player. Um, because I think you actually have to know more of the, you know, the theory of, of the theories of poker to be a tournament player. And she would, you know, she would start to teach me um, the differences between tournament and cash cash games, and and I think she's a really skilled tournament player, um, and I'm you know learning from her. And so when she said, "Let's go play the tag team tournament," I was I was sure I'll, I'll play with you. You're you know I'll learn something from you. Um, Just rewind. And this comes into play in the tag team, which why we were such a strong team. 
I remember my first tournament that I um, played with my dad. It was actually at the Hustler. Um, it was a Memorial Day tournament. It was like $120, like a daily, you know, nothing special. Um, unfortunately, my dad got knocked out. He hadn't done the free rolls yet. But uh, anyways, and I remember reaching the final table and we were down to the final five. And I tend to lean on the side of caution when it comes to making deals. And that's another conversation. But this tournament was so poorly structured that a deal was a good idea. There just wasn't that much skill or stack maneuverability or playability. And, you know, in these local casino tournaments, you know, they're just so top heavy because they want you out of there. So it just made a lot of sense. But we were down to five players and I was the second biggest stack. And the guy was the, that was the shortest stack, he doesn't want to make a deal. And, you know, he looks like he just turned 21 yesterday. All right. He's like this young kid. He's out there to prove himself. And when you're getting into the psychology, that matters, right? You know, a lot of time when I first started playing poker, I tried to learn about how do people construct bluffs. And now that I'm older, I just start asking me more basic. Does this person even have interest in bluffing? And you start there before you level yourself um, into too much strategy. But anyways, so clearly he does. Clearly he's interested in being cool. And I remember he shoved, like we play a hand together, we're on the turn and he shoves all in and I have king high, no draw. And this is for the tournament and my dad's at the table next to me watching. But it was like, it was a dry board. It was like a nine, seven, deuce, deuce, two diamonds. That was the exact board. And I'm sitting here with King High and he's all in. And if I lost that hand, I would be the shortest stack in the tournament. Plus, this is the first time my dad's ever seen me play a tournament. And he's sitting right next to me, uh, the table next to me. And I knew that I had my dad's backing and I just felt like this guy was trying to push me around and had some sort of draw. And so I called and I knew the math there. I knew that I'm not calling ahead of King or Jack, but before I put my chips in, I turned to the guy next to me, who was like this old curmudgeonly guy that I recognize. And I turned to him next to me and I said, I'm calling because I think I have the best hand. And I revealed King high and the young kid had eight high. And, and I held, which was also important. He had eight, six, he was open-ended, right? Um, and, then, and then we chopped right after. But I, having my dad's confidence in me, how many people, you know, can have that level of security that they're calling for their whole tournament at the final table when they have a huge chip lead with King High and do it, you know, Next to my dad, that's, a, that's even more than being on camera, right? This is him really seeing me play, and I don't want him to think I'm some donkey. And I was like, this is either going to look really good or really bad. Uh, <laughs> but uh, fortunately, it worked out. And when we, you know, we can talk about the tag team too, but when we were playing the tag team, I remember there were times in that tournament where people would say, I would call here if it uh, wasn't my teammates' chips. Like I would call here if I didn't have the pressure of letting down my teammate. 
and the hand that turned around the tag team for us was a situation like that. It was this big, giant hero call. And I thought about my dad and I knew that this was an all in. This was for all of not just my chips, but our chips. And then I knew that no matter what I did, I had my dad's blessing, which I think that gave us an extreme advantage. And, you know, in the facility to make decisions that we wouldn't have otherwise, just knowing that your, your teammates, you know, we, we did it together. Yeah. I would love to think that that might apply to my tactical Tuesday co-host, John, if we played the tag team event, but I think he would be thrilled if he busted in five minutes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He would find it hilarious, but I do see that weird sort of social dynamic in a tag team event where like, you don't want to be the one responsible for busting out your team, um, which could make people more risk averse in high pressure spots. I mean, well, my dad with being risk with one, you know, the way that you think like a poker player, the first rule that you learn when you're learning is to not be results oriented, right? That's like lesson one when you're trying to get good at the game. And I remember the first time my dad and I ever played at a casino together. This was like a month or two before the tournament was at a cash game. Um, and I was really bad. Like I was so bad. It was we had $5 chips and I would count them out in stacks of two and stacks of $10. And I remember my dad in all seriousness, he asked me point blank, you do that to annoy people. Like that's how bad I was. And anyways, it's annoying me. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So we're racking up our chips and I'm about even, which is a huge victory, huge victory. Right. You know, I'm like literally four weeks into playing poker in a casino setting. And there's this super loose, crazy guy he raises. And of course I have kinks and I re-raise. And this is my only re-raise of the entire night. You know, I'm playing very face up here, very, you know, obvious. I have a really good hand and he shoves all in. And I look at my dad and I said, I'm sorry, dad, I have to call. And the guy flips over ace king and he hits his ace and I lose. And I looked at my dad and again, I said, I'm sorry, dad. I had to call. My dad says, I would have been more upset if you didn't call. And that's, that's enlightened, (laughs) you know, in terms of poker and, you know, in terms of, you know, learning that early on, um, really, really, really obviously. Yeah. You're, you're in a thing. You may as well do the thing, right. You know, um, come, Hell or high water results be damned in poker and in life. I wanted to add one thing just on uh, playing together and, 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 and image, table image, because um, I think it matters. Um, so we're, we're playing the tag team and we're barely hanging on the first day. Most of our conversation was where we're we going to go have dinner tonight after we bust. Uh, but she engineers kind of a heroic comeback and gets us through and then we're playing day two and she's starting out she went a few hours she did she did well she did well enough but then she tagged me okay you're in and all of a sudden i'm at this table with a bunch of kind of young guns and um they're all 20 something and i think most of them were pros and they were kind of startled by by who are you like taking over for amanda like (laughs) 
Which My dad got the tough tables. He had Jeff Platt, Schwan Liu, Melanie Watts. Like he had the yeah, the young pro kids. And I could just tell they were in, they were it was weird. They were intimidated somehow by this older guy taking over for, you know, cute young Amanda. And 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 I'm just thinking to myself, you know, one of the things I know of, of when I was playing early on is that when you're younger, everybody thinks you're loving. You're just your table image by default when you're under 30 is your blessing. And so I, I got to call you. And as you get older, that shifts. And so I know that they're all 20 something, then they're pros. And they're going to look at me and think, this guy doesn't, doesn't bluff, doesn't know how to bluff, never will bluff, never can bluff. And I think I spent the next two hours without a hand. <laughs> we had this maniacal chip lead at the end of it because they wouldn't, I never turned my cards over. I just bluffed my brains out because I knew my image on that table and particularly in contrast to Amanda's was the older guy who doesn't know what he's doing and has got to have the goods every single time. And it was, shocking to me that these pros were going to let me get away with it and they did and i remember i you know i remember intimidating some of these people just in, in table talk but they're you know i think that's something as you get older you have it's, it's funny to say this you have to develop your bluff much more so as you get older than than even when you're younger because your table image is so the opposite. It's so that older people just don't do that. They're all on social security and they don't want to take the risk. And that is the table image of people as they get older. But, um, you know, we, that was fun. <laughs> we were really, we really jetted up the leaderboard on day two. And, um, and all of a sudden at the end of day two, we are one of the major chip leaders in the tournament. And I think one of the most fun times of my whole life was as we're walking in together at the beginning of day three in the final table. And as we're walking down the hallway at, um, at the Rio, we have uh, media coming up to us, camera people coming up to us. Are you the daddy daughter team? And we looked at each other and we said, the daddy daughter team. Well, we didn't call it that shot, but I guess we are. Yes, we are. And they're like, oh, good. Could we have a few moments? Could we get an interview? And all, all of a sudden, we're the daddy-daughter team. And we're the only one in the tournament, I think. And it's, it's, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to play poker with your daughter. But it is a hoot for me. And that was more fun than I've ever had in my whole life. Um, you know, playing the final table together. Oh my God. For somebody like me with my daughter. Oh, I mean, it was just, it was just uh, one of the highlight experiences of my whole life. I mean, frankly, and I was prouder than could be. And she picked off a couple of major bluffs at the beginning of the final table. And of course I trust her to make that read. I know, you know what? I know she's making that read because 
I'm behind her. I know, I know she knows that I've, I've got her back no matter what happens. And, and she wants to do good by me. And so she will, she will make those reads. Um, as, and as I will for her, you know, like we played a tournament a few weeks ago and it was when she busted, it was really hard for me to continue playing that tournament. Like it was a thing, it's a thing for us to play together. And oftentimes, you know, we'll go to Hollywood park and, you know, we'll, we'll play like low stakes tables and, but we want to play together because it's fun for us to play together at, at the same table. And then sometimes people will figure, people will look at us. I've had several times people look at me and say, are you and her? And then they'll go, nah, nah, you couldn't be. And, and then I'll just nod. Yeah, you're right. Couldn't possibly be. But it is, it is, it is a real different experience playing with your daughter because you do have that, you know, there's a, there's a particular relationship that dads and daughters have, you know, to each other. And it really actually works well as a dynamic in the tag team. Tell me about having a daughter that plays poker in casinos all the time. You know, I have two young daughters that are 11 and 13. Um, lots of talk in the world of poker about the female poker players experience. Um, so how do you feel about Amanda out there battling in the card rooms? Well, look, it, Amanda's the one that has to, you know, take the battle on, but she, you know, as far as I'm concerned, she's like Joan of Arc, you know, she's going out there and leading the troops and she wants to, you know, she's, she's got the battle cry going and she is out there elegantly, you know, doing a blockbuster video move. You know, they think that she's not good by default because she's a female. And that's the, that's the reputation of, uh, of females. Um, what do I think about it as, as her father? I just want her to play, I want her to be intelligent in her play. You know, that, that whole thing was real. You know, she apologized for calling with Kings. And I, I really did tell her I would have been more upset if she would have folded Kings pre-flop. You never fold Kings pre-flop unless you have, uh, unless you're omniscient, you just don't do it. And, um, and, and, you know, but she, she wanted, she wanted me, you know, she wanted me to know that she was, you know, going to win no matter what. So I am, I'm with her trying to figure out how she can be best be most effective. What do I think about her going out there and doing that? You know what I really think? I think it's hard. I don't think it's easy for guys to go play poker because it's a state, it, it's a, it's a quasi state of, of um, warfare that you got to get comfortable with and got to get, um, you know, you, you've got to get, you've got to swim in that water Yeah. for females. It's far more difficult because, you know, as Amanda points out, I think women as a whole are much more risk averse than men. I don't think women are programmed to take chances um, uh, as, as men are. Men are encouraged to go, go into battle. 
women are not. Women are their, you know, their expectation is to get married, you know, have live in a household. Maybe if you're really lucky, you can get a quote unquote good job, something like that. But that's the what's the expectations for women. There's not an expectation for women to go out and do battle. Not like that. And take those kinds of risks. So um, I fully, frankly, encourage it. I don't want her to be dumb about it. I don't want her to overplay. You know, she played too many tournaments after we pocketed, after we won, you know, we, we final tabled the tag team. We did, you know, we, we, we made a lot of money, but she just kept playing tournaments. She played the main and she kept playing. And so she kind of, you know, Manda loves to play poker. Manda it think, thinks it's the most fun you could possibly have. But that's her discovery. You know, like one of the things that we're different at is I always tell her that when I take a when I take a when I take a beat, or even when I lose, I don't want to go back to a while. I just want to kind of recover. I'm not trying to go back right away. To my surprise. She tells me that when she takes a beat, she wants to go right back and prove herself. And that's a different philosophy for me. So it, as a father, the thing that worries me is that she keeps trying to go back too quickly once she's taken a beat and hasn't sat back and analyzed her play to figure out what she did or didn't do right so she doesn't do that again. So I want her to take a step back, figure it out, before trying to go prove herself again. Yeah, the, that's the only thing that I have a real concern about. There's um, a, a lot to unpack there. I think um, major greatness bomb in that, you know, the feeling of entering warfare. Uh, you know, it's something that I recognize in myself that whenever I'm firing up a poker session, whenever I, you know, go somewhere, walk in a poker room, there's a different feeling in my gut than in my day to day life. It is, you know, this is go time. We have to perform. We have to be intense. We have to notice everything. And it's something that can wear you down. It, if you spend too much time in that just warfare mode, um, you can burn out. I know lots of poker players that burn out just because it's very difficult maintaining that intensity um, over time. Uh, this, the second thing, I think that I'm probably constructed in a similar way as Amanda in that my sessions tend to go longer when I get stuck, like three or four buy-ins typically, like right from the jump. And it's a weird, like, it's a weird feeling of focus when, you know, like if somebody were to push me down on the sidewalk, my first response is just to like, get up, like do battle, focus, get in the moment, make better decisions. Um, and so I think that like, whenever you do get kind of punched in the face, gaining that ability to refocus and invest energy, um, into overcoming, I think can also be an asset. Uh, the flip side of that, where it's detrimental is when you're not overcovering, you're not, or you're not recovering, um, from the first blow and you're just playing in like an emotionally compromised state and you're not feeling more focused. But if you can focus that negative energy, um, it can definitely be an asset uh, to your poker game. Absolutely. Well, the funny thing I was like, I have a tendency to, 
When I get really, really on from time to time, and I'll win a lot of money, I want to keep playing. I, I, I can go back every day. But when I've, you know, when I've taken the hits, I, I, I tend to just put the money away <laughs> and let's go spend the money. <laughs> let's go have, let's go have fun doing it. But yeah, I, I, I think that's, here's what I think. I think that's endemic to a great tournament player. Because I, I think that's what you have to do. I think you think, I think you have to come back and buy into the next tournament and be willing to, you know, engage one more time and and hopefully recover and make and learn the lesson that of, of the last tournament. And there's always something that, you know, whatever. When you win you a do, tournament, there's lessons to be learned. No matter what, there's always lessons to be learned at the poker table. You know, what I think is really interesting is I read once that um, winning a tournament or doing well, really well at a tournament tends to have you do better at the next tournament. And that's counterintuitive for me because usually it's like you're saying, if you take a couple of beats, you don't do well at a tournament, that's when you supposedly learn. But what's funny in poker is I think that you learn as much or more winning. You learn what it takes to win and that's different. And you can't learn what it takes to win unless you win. And I think that's unique to poker. Um, Cause I think like in the business world, I've learned a lot more. I, I like to say the greatest tragedies in my life in the business community and in my life as a whole have been the source of the greatest successes. Cause I wouldn't have had those tragedies. Um, I wouldn't have been motivated to overcome them. But I think it's different in poker. I think that it's not just motivation. I think you learn by winning. And I don't think you do that in any other pursuit um, or not as much in, in other pursuits. Um, I think you figure out what, what will work in other pursuits. But, you know, I like, you know, the, my father's passing when I was 18 is the worst thing that ever happened to me. But it's brought the greatest successes because I, you know, you talk about, you know, mentors or families, sometimes those expectations keep you on track, but they also keep you from jumping off diving boards. Yeah. They, so interestingly, I, I think this was in a detox files episode with Nick Howard, a mindset console, but Basically, he talked about a family and a parent specifically. One of their major things is to protect the child, right? Protect them from taking on too much risk, protect them from hurting themselves. Um, in a lot of cases, it could be self-serving too, because the child goes out into the world, they get hurt, and then, you know, they move back in with their parents. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to be responsible to them for another length of time. So like there is these, there are these natural incentives to um, have your children be more risk averse and less risk inclined because A, you want to prevent harm from befalling them. And two, you know, you want them to be an autonomous adult who's out on their own and is uh, can sustain their own life, um, which in some cases can be detrimental to said human if they don't um, take the risks that they want to take, right? That's the challenge. You're not talking about the inherent challenge of being a parent because there's no nothing great that happens from 
coddling somebody. Um, you know, kids that grow up with too much given to them have really been compromised and they will, I think, forever be compromised. And I think it, um, it takes away from somebody the extraordinary, you, you never have a sense of accomplishment when you grow up having too much coddling or too much given to you. So you've got to, whoever you are, you've got to be able and willing to take risks and fail. And there's something great about failure. Yeah. And I don't, I, I, I actually think that the space, the environment of extraordinary success and extraordinary failure is the same. And I know that sounds weird, but you know, most of the time you live in kind of a middling zone. We all do. Um, but extraordinary success and extraordinary failure are not norms. Um, they're odd and they have the experientially, I think they're much the same. I think that huge breakdowns are the same experientially as breakthroughs. They're out of the norm. Yeah. You're, you're pushing the boundaries of your life experience and exactly. starting so I, unnavigated waters, which come, you know, whether you fail or succeed, you're at least finding your limits. Exactly. So I think, you know, I think you got to let your daughters, you almost got to encourage your daughters to take things on. Now, I don't think you should take things on. I don't, I don't think forcing somebody to take something on that's not their thing is counter is, is going to backfire. You know, my son likes chess. Let's do chess. Amanda discovered, I mean, I literally discovered poker, discovered it, discovered her love for poker. Um, so my job as, as a parent is to get behind that, whatever those things are and, and guide them through it as best I can, but I'm not going to protect them. I'm not going to protect them against risk or failure. I'm going to encourage them. Something that was quite profound when I was in high school. So before high school, I didn't have good grades and I was very overweight and very depressed. In high school, I lose 40 pounds and I take on cross country running. And there was this turning point my junior year. And everyone I knew was taking AP history, right? They were taking the advanced history class. And I thought, that's what you do. You're supposed to take AP history. And I had a conversation with my mother and she said, and she was just completely honest about it. She was like, you want to spend two hours a night doing AP history homework, or do you want to be running? And at the time I said running and that semester I'd set two school records, Santa Monica high on different cross country courses. And what I learned and being able that put in the work and you achieve results, I think was phenomenal. And in college, you know, and I took history classes, but so history is important too. Uh, I don't want to, I'm Wait, very you, passionate. You, you do have to, but, you know, Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss, right? Like it's an yeah, important part of was, the, the human journey. So what my dad says about winning, like you want to get good at something. And because I wasn't particularly athletic growing up, I had this huge disadvantage 
when I was in the cross country team. Cause a lot of the girls that were hitting the varsity times, they'd been playing soccer since they were six years old. Right. And I just couldn't make up the mileage. And so what I did is I got as many subscriptions to running magazines as I could. I got as many running books as I could. And I thought, whatever I can do, however I can master my form, however I can stretch better. I remember that year I asked my parents for the holidays. I said I wanted like this rubber tub so I could use it to do ice baths. You know, whatever I could do to get an edge. And what was phenomenal and I think produced those results, I never got injured because I would actually spend more time stretching and doing recovery and doing whatever I needed to do to make up, which the other kids weren't doing. And it sounds silly because we're talking about sports and running. But for me, that was the first time I made flashcards, like with poker. Like for me, it was like, I'm going to outstudy this. You know, I'm going to find out where I can close the gap in other areas. And I had extraordinary results as an underdog. Natural talent, like that's, it it can be a blessing and a curse, right? Like if it causes Mm -hmm. you to be lazy and to lean on it, then you aren't able to develop and go as far as you otherwise could. I mean, that's a, that's a great story about, you know, perseverance, willpower, and training yourself um, in ways that other people just weren't willing to do. And the ironic thing is I, I hated running. So, you know, and I ended up, I, I never liked running. I found it incredibly boring. Uh, and, you know, and I had a coach and this is very good advice. He said, never run to music because then you'll get too accustomed to it. Then you run a race and you won't be able to run without music. It'll, you know, it'll be too hard. So this was like, I really really did it to prove something to myself. You know, I went from middle school being kind of the ugly duckling, the odd one out to high school is one of the best times of my life. And I was popular and I was popular for the right reasons, you know, because I was in the newspaper, the school newspaper on the announcements. And I remember, it's probably a little tangential, but when I was in eighth grade, we went to this space astro camp. And we had this exercise where you were supposed to lift whoever. And this is like your worst nightmare as a 13-year-old girl, having all your peers lift you. And then making this even worse, this one guy says, but she's too heavy. At 13 years old as a girl. And I didn't even have a friend I could roommate with. That was like my worst fears realized. And I remember in high school, I walk into my English class and it's that same kid and he has the student newspaper open, sports section. And I just won another race. He said, is this you? And I said, yes. And he said, that's impressive. And again, I hated running. It was the worst thing. And I dedicated my life to it because I wanted to have that victory. And I wanted to have that win. And I wanted to be able to achieve results and to prove myself. And, you know, even though I'm a writer and I worked in history and I, again, very much value history, but my mom also giving me the backing saying, you don't have to take AP history. I think that was incredible. That's, that's my mom saying, I would have been more upset if you fold, you know, that's her saying, don't fold Kings pre-flop. You know, that, that's the, 
that's the parental wisdom and what happens when you have parents that really back you. Yeah, it's really, really great stuff. Um, I think going to have to to wind down a little bit now. Unfortunately, I, I have a meeting starting in about five minutes. Um, just a, a couple quick questions for uh, for you guys before we we close down. Um, David, if you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? Hmm. And it doesn't have to be about poker necessarily. And A Girl's Guide to Poker is is clearly the, the biased favorite for this answer, I think. But You know what I actually, if I was a poker player, I might read. There's a book called The Millionaire Next Door. And it talks about how people become really um, successful in reality. And it's not what you think. You know, they talked about how most real millionaires don't lease Mercedes. They, they, you know, they get, you know, back in the day, Buicks. Um, and how most people, um, have, most wealthy people like Warren Buffett, you know, he still lives in the same house that he bought in Omaha, Nebraska in 1957 or something like that. But it talks about in reality how people become successful and wealthy. And I think that's what, you know, poker players are all about. They want to, they want to do that. So I would just, I would read The Millionaire Next Door. Awesome. Um, if you could put up a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What's your billboard say? What's my bill? Everybody, every poker player's got to drive past the billboard on the way to the casino. Um, this is not your last poker game. Yeah. It, it goes on indefinitely. Probably. <laughs> well, probably, depending on the demographic, I guess, uh, who are frequenting the poker room. Um, well, it's been great having both of you on. Amanda, your third time on CPG. Uh, David, very um, great to meet you. And just tons of greatness bombs in here. Really look forward to uh, seeing y'all battling in tag team events for the foreseeable future. I assume that's on the agenda now. Yes, we are looking at all of the tournaments out there that, that we can participate in as much together as possible. Amanda? I think my dad's going to have a major edge in the seniors event. <laughs> I think I'm giving up my edge here by, by telling people all what I'm really thinking and what I'm really doing. But Well, the good news is it's audio only, so tough to uh, pick you out in, in a crowd. Uh, <laughs> Amanda, anything you'd like to say or add before we close down shop? Um, I love you, Dad. I love you too. I might, and I hope you know. I hope my daughter wins every tournament that she enters. Thank you guys for your time and your energy. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.